special welcome to you. Um, we're going to continue this morning in our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 22 this morning, just beginning uh, that chapter, uh, just going straight through the Gospel of Luke, and we're starting to get toward um, the end of it and the you know, climactic events. So uh, this, to this morning, and we'll start to set the stage um, you know, for the end of the book. And it's an important passage, and there's a lot of things in here for us to tackle this morning. Um, so just ask that we work through it together, that both your, your heart and your mind, you know, are both engaged um, in this today. You know, we want to really um, engage with God on every level of who we are. It's not just mental. It's not just emotional. Um, it's, and it's uh, certainly uh, spiritual, and so we want to engage on all levels this morning. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll read uh, some of the verses here and and get started. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege to be here this morning to worship you. Uh, We thank you for each person, uh, each family represented. We ask that you would bless them all, Lord. Uh, We ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would help us to learn from it and to um, apply it um, properly to our lives. Um, Lord, help us to see as you see um, in these things. Give us understanding, we pray. Uh, but Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just walk away from here knowing something more, but that would become part of who we are. Um, Jesus, we thank you uh, for your words that teach us and for your life that teaches us and for your, ultimately for your sacrifice that paid uh, for our sins at the cross. Uh, we thank you that so powerful the grave could not hold you. And Lord, we are thankful that salvation is found in your name. Uh, Lord, we pray for those in our church family who can't be here today for one reason or another. We ask that they would know your love and our love this morning uh, for them. And we ask that you would bless them this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, So Luke chapter 22, let's begin. Um, We'll read the first six verses. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that's Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him, um, to betray to them in the absence of of a crowd, and so what we see here, you know, for a while now, um, the the chief priests, the the chief rulers of Israel, have been looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus, and they haven't been able to find that opportunity, and they've been fearful of the people because many of the people, you know, were following Jesus and and you know wanted to hear what Jesus had to say and wanted to see his you know miracles, and so they um, the the leaders were afraid that if they, you know, killed Jesus in front of the people, that um, the people would then turn on them. And so they had, um, you know, this, this idea to wait and kind of to, to buy their time. And then really they were going to wait until the Passover was all done because in the time of the Passover, you know, most of the nation would come to, you know, Jerusalem, you know, to worship. And many of the people, you know, in these surrounding areas had been following Jesus and, you know, hearing his messages. And, you know, we've already had the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with the people laying down their, you know, their palm branches and uh, Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey and, you know, coming into the, to the city and people are praising him um, and, you know, saying, Hosanna, uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, you know, that's all happened and so the, the ones who want to kill him say, well, now's not the right time. He has too, you know, Jesus has too many friends here. The interesting thing, though, as we see in the whole picture, is that the, uh, these you know, leaders who think they can kind of manipulate things and control things to their own end are really not that much in control. 
you know, they certainly play a, a role to play, but Jesus isn't going to go to the cross until it's his time to go to the cross. Um, and so they've been waiting for this opportunity, and here comes this opportunity. Uh, you know, Judas, you know, called Iscariot, he, he's opened himself up to the work of the devil in his life. We know that he was um, in charge of the, the money, you know, for the disciples, that he was the one who, who held the money that would be used to help the poor and to, you know, the, the disciples would even use, of course, to, to buy their, their daily food and things like this. And, you know, we know that he um, put away some of that money for himself. You know, he, he was taking money out of that communal money and making it personal money. He was stealing. Um, we know he was doing that, and we know he was, you know, that he has a certain uh, greed that is, you know, within him. But through that, you know, he had given, you know, the enemy a place for a, a foothold in his life. He had opened himself up um, because he, you know, wasn't one who confessed his sin when he sinned, but held on to his sin. And so he opened himself up to the work of the enemy um, in his life, and he you know, it says he sought how he could betray Jesus, and he agreed to do it for money. Again, that there's that theme constant in his life, that stumbling block for him, that he, you know, it, it, it's never enough for him, and he, he wants, you know, he wants more, he wants more, he wants more, and he's willing to do, obviously, here anything, you know, to get it. Um, and he's been, it says Satan entered Judas Iscariot, and, you know, he's, He's now, um, he's a puppet, basically, you know, is what it's come down to. That, that you know, he's opened himself so much open to sin that, that now he's, a, he's in the position of a, of a slave to it. You know, it started where he, you know, he was, you know, he was in control. He thought he was in control. And, and now there's a powerful force at work, you know, in him. It's a terrible thing. And so he agrees to search for an opportunity to betray Jesus to them. But he's got to do it at a time where a bunch of people are around. He's got to wait for that opportunity. And so here we are going to come toward that opportunity as we pick up in verse 7. It says, Then the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, so the day came. And so Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. That's just, you know, it's, it's a really cool scene that we have here of Jesus telling his disciples, you know, go and prepare this Passover, this Passover lamb. Um, and, you know, of course, their, their thought is, well, you know, where are we supposed to do this? We don't have a place here, you know, to do this. And, and Jesus tells them this chain of events. You're going to go to the city. There's going to be a man, you know, carrying a jar of water, and he's going he's gonna to greet you and then follow him, and he's going to take you to this, to this house. And this a person who owns this house is going to have a room, you know, that's prepared. It's, it's furnished. It's ready for you, and you can prepare the meal there. But the room and everything you need, you know, the table, it's all, it's all going to be there. And how cool is that? You know, we've had a couple of things at our, our uh, house, you know, this, this week. Um, but we knew well in advance what those events were and what we were preparing for. And so, but this guy, you know, he knows he's supposed to be ready. He knows he's supposed to say yes when he's asked for this place to use his house, but he, I don't think he fully, fully understands the implications that, that Jesus is going to be the one to use this room with his disciples and that it's going to be, you know, a crucial event in human history. You know, it's unlikely that he understands all the implications about what he's to do, but, you know, I want us to learn something from this, from this person who was obedient. You know, the Lord obviously had, you know, worked and prompted in his heart to be ready for something, even if he didn't know what that something was fully. But, and then when, the, when it came, that time, there comes a point of time of, 
you know, you're being prepared, but then you're asked to do something, and then there's that point of, am I going to be obedient or not obedient? Am I going to say yes or I'm going to say no to what the Lord is asking me to do? And, you know, it, this might not seem like such a huge deal here because it's a, you know, it's a room for a, a party. And it might seem like this grand life decision, but its implications are really, really, really big. And, and what I would, you know, want us to take from it today, what I hope that we take from it today is our des- desire that we have hearts that are ready to say yes to Jesus for what he asks and us to do and when he asks us to do it. And that's certainly not, you know, always easy. So I want to tackle just a couple of things here before we go any further. And one of them is this question of, you know, what is the Passover? Because you might be here this morning, you know, we're, we've said this word Passover a couple of times, and it might be in your mind, you know, what is that? Why is this important? What are they, what are they doing? How did this all start? And so if you go back into the Old Testament, if you go back um, even to the, the book of, of Genesis, and you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob, you know, has his sons, um, and you have, you know, the, these 12, you know, sons, and one, Joseph, is betrayed by the others, and he's sent down into Egypt. But really, that was, you know, um, God was at, at work in that bad circumstance, and he was, you know, using that to save the lives of, of many people because there was going to be a great famine that would come. And Joseph, it's really interesting, his life and his story, he's, you know, he suffers greatly. He suffers greatly um, in that he's, you know, sold into slavery, in that he's, you know, falsely accused of a crime that he didn't commit and he's thrown into prison. But yet ultimately in his faithfulness and his obedience to God, he ends up being second in, the, in all the land of Egypt, just below the Pharaoh of the time. And he's able to prepare for this, you know, coming disaster. And where there's not food in the surrounding areas, there is food in Egypt. And so um, his brothers and his father and his, you know, those families end up living, you know, in Egypt. But after Joseph is gone and, and some time has passed and you know, the uh, future Pharaoh does not remember what Joseph had done for the, for the nation of Egypt, um, these, these Hebrews end up being slaves. And for 400 years, they're in bondage, they're in slavery, and it, they're, they're constantly oppressed in this relationship. It's a racial relationship that's not working very well for them because it's an oppressive relationship. And they cry out to God for deliverance. And ultimately, you know, God uses Moses to, you know, bring the people out of, out of Egypt. But the, you know, Pharaoh would, some, you know, there would be a plague, there would be something that would happen, and, and Pharaoh would say he would let the people go, and then he changes his mind. And then this last one, God says, okay, he's going to kill the firstborn in every family of both human and livestock. I mean, this is serious. But he's going to pass over every home where they have sacrificed the Passover lamb, and they have taken its blood, and they put it on the outside of, of the door, on the post, and on the top. And that's going to be a sign that, you know, the judgment is going to pass over and not give judgment to that house. There's going to be protection. And so it happens here. And this is a huge event because God even tells them, okay, this is going to be the first month of your year. Like everything now is going to, moving forward for, the, for these Hebrews, they're going to become the nation of Israel. That everything moving forward for them, you know, is going, this is the starting point. We're even going to change what month it is so that you recognize this is the beginning here. And so that event happens. And of course, there's great grief in the land of Egypt. And then, you know, they are sent, the, the, the Hebrews are, are sent out, sent away. They're able, they're now free and they're able to go. 
And we know there's a lot more to that story that we don't have time to get into this morning. But I want us to remember that that sacrificial lamb was now central to understanding of what it meant to be a Hebrew person and to be part of that community, to be part of that that nation. And so every year it would come and they were supposed to celebrate and to have this Passover. And so this is the time, and it's not by coincidence that this is the time that Jesus is going to go to the cross. Because there is a deep, deep connection between you know, that picture in the Old Testament in uh, that picture back in history of the Passover lamb and Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. We're going to talk about that um, a little bit as we go on. But in this, I, I just want to make one word because I think in our, in our reading sometimes in our, we can misunderstand God's ultimate plan and his, and his ultimate purposes. We see judgment at a particular time on a people or on a nation and then we can assume, well, God doesn't love the you know, Egyptians and there's no plan you know, for them. Um, I would just remind you of Isaiah chapter 19, or perhaps you've never heard it before, but just to know that God does love Egypt. It says, in that day, a future day is what that is. Israel be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, both Egypt and Assyria at different times were enemies, have been enemies of the people of Israel. Yet, God says that Egypt is his people, and that Assyria is the work of his hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, how does that all play out ultimately? It plays out in Jesus that what is, what is broken and what is fractured and where there is, you know, hatred between people that ultimately in Jesus, these things can be, you know, broken down and there can be, you know, a common belief in him. That's going to happen for some of these. It doesn't say it's going to happen for every person in those, you know, nations. We can't look at it that way, but we can look at it with great hope. When you... If you look at Egypt and, you know, what's going on and, you know, Assyria here is, you know, where Syria is and all the stuff that's going on in that part of the world today. And we can look at it today and have a hard time finding hope. But the bigger biblical picture is we have a lot of reason to have hope because what does God say about it? He says that Egypt is my people and Assyria is the work of my hands. And in, even in Israel, we see, where we see great atrocities today, and we see injustice, and we see you know, that most of the people do not you know, worship Yahweh, do not worship you know, God as he has you know, always been. But where many are you know, atheists and agnostic and are just you know, culturally religious, and sometimes we can have a hard time seeing hope in those situations, and we, uh, we know the Scripture gives us great reason for hope. But our hope is ultimately in the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate Passover Lamb. So let's keep that in mind as we continue on. Verse 14 says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We'll stop there for a moment um, and just kind of set this scene. So they're, they're up in, you know, they're in this upper room. It says they're reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Now, you all know, you know, famous, you know, painting of the, of the Last Supper. And, you know, it's nice that they all got on one side of it and posed, you know, and everything. Of course, that, you know, didn't happen. Um, but that picture... 
because you know you've seen it so many times can end up become that can become reality even though it's just a misperception of what the scene actually looks like you know i mean they're actually you know not sitting in chairs like we have chairs it says here you know if you if you read the text though and you go by what the text says you know they're reclined at the table and so the, the table would be a low table a lot of times there were pillows to kind of support you you know and, and people are reclining toward this you know table where you know the the food is um, but it's a it's a very uh, different eating style than our you know Western way where we have a table you know at a at a greater height and we slide our chair underneath it and we all sit there you know with our forks and spoons and knives and everything like that's not what's going on here and it's not super important but I do think um, I mean it is important for us to understand the culture um, of Jesus' day and to see you know how how people did things because what I would I would want us to be careful of is that you know we read we have a tendency to read the scripture through a lens we tend to see it through an individualistic lens a materialistic lens a western lens you know we you know in our we tend to see it through the culture our own culture and our own experiences and what we have to learn to do is when we sit down with our with our Bibles, is to kind of take our glasses off, okay, and set them to the side. As and, and that's difficult, and we can and I admit we're kind of limited in our ability to do that. But we, as best we can, we have to set those aside, and we have to put on a different set of glasses, so we can actually see twenty twenty here. You know, through a, through the culture, you know, and language, and you know. Just the, the way things were done, you know, in that day. And so, you, have, you know, when we come at it, it, it it's helpful because just even slowing down as you read and recognizing he reclined at the table, you go, wait a second, that's a different mental picture than the picture that's in my mind from the painting I've grown up seeing. You know, and so it kind of resets and reorients. And you go, okay, well, why is that important? Why, why does you know, why does that matter? Because, you know, you can argue, okay, that's just, you know, isn't it kind of nitpicky? Does it matter if he was reclined or if, he, you know, he's sitting there? In that sense, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't so much, quote-unquote, matter theologically. But the issue is that we tend to read our perspective and our culture and all these things into all of the Scripture, and that's where we end up with problems. That's where it causes us, you know, difficulties, Because we have, may have our idea, you know, just to use one, you know, one example, you know, our individualism affects us so much more than we even think it does, you know, because, I mean, that's kind of just driven, you know, down our, our throats all the time. And, yes, being an individual is important. And we don't just throw out being an individual. But we have such a hard time reading the Scripture in the communal aspect of it when it comes to the church and the life of the church. And that gets betrayed, and we all, I mean, we all basically, we betray it in, even in our vocabulary, you know, our language that we use. We say things like, are you going to church this Sunday? Well, what does that mean? What is, you know, what, is, what does that even mean, are you going to church this Sunday? When actually, you know, so what we've defined it as again, through our Western lens, is that church is a place that you go to to, you know, have this experience on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, and then you leave that place and you're no longer at church, you're separate. But when you read the scripture, you know, we are the body of Christ, we are you know, are the church. We meet together as the church. So, you know, it's just, we need to be careful um, as we read the scripture to take, a, to take the time to understand what perspective and what biases we're bringing, in to, we're bringing to the table and try to lay those down as best we can. Okay. Off of that. Now, 
back to this Passover. If you read in um, Exodus 12, you can read all about the Passover, you know, the original Passover, and what they were instructed to do and how they were instructed to do it. The interesting thing there is that you won't actually find um, a, a cup taken there in Exodus chapter 12. But by the time of, of Jesus, it was common. There were, there were probably four cups that were taken during the course of the meal at this time. And as you read in the Old, Old Testament, you know, a cup a lot of times was um, a cup of, it was symbolic, a cup of judgment or a, you know, cup of, of God's wrath, something of that nature. Um, but you also have another side of it. Psalm 116 verse 13 says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And so, you know, these cups that they, they took, to, you know, throughout the meal tended to represent different things. There's a little bit of debate about each cup and meeting, but, you know, perhaps the first cup was more of a cup of, you know, of sanctification, a toast of, you know, preparing yourself for what the rest of the meal and what was about to happen. You know, the second cup, perhaps being reminded of the cup of judgment poured out on Egypt for, you know, Israel's salvation. Uh, in that case, and so there's these different cups that he takes. But what's significant here is that Jesus is going to give um, the cup ultimate meaning. He's going to give it ultimate meaning. First thing he says is he says he took a cup. This is toward the beginning. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's powerful. In the book of Revelation, we see you know, marriage supper of the Lamb. There's this future event that Jesus is waiting for to celebrate with his people. And so Jesus is waiting for that. Now later on it says he took bread. When given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So here we have the bread that he takes. He breaks it, and he gives it to him, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup. Um, And so basically it says, there's a connection there in that remembrance. You know, we have the bread and we have the cup. Um, After they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this last cup that, you know, that we see here um, recorded in Luke is the the cup of the table that we have before us today. Those are the same, synonymous. And it's a cup of the new covenant Jesus says that it's in his blood. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. We see this written about in the book of Hebrews. But the old covenant was based on the law given by God through Moses. It's important, it served a purpose, and it still serves a purpose today. Because the law given by God through Moses shows us that we're all sinners, and that we're not capable of meeting God's standards. It's really the ultimate purpose of the law, is to show us that we're all guilty. We're all shown to be selfish. We're all shown to be liars, thieves, given to worship of idols, covetous. And you might say, well, I haven't broken that part of the law. You know, I haven't broken the adultery part of the law, or I haven't broken the thief, you know, I haven't ever stolen anything. I haven't broken that part of the law. Well, in saying what part of the law you haven't broken, you are in fact acknowledging that you are a lawbreaker. You're acknowledging that you've broken something in the law. You know, and, and that's really, it sounds, sounds harsh, you know, but sometimes people are like, well, I haven't done anything so bad. It's like, well, have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, when I was a kid, I took this, or when I was a teenager, I took that. Okay, what do you call a person who stole something? A thief. Well, you're a thief. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. What do you call somebody who tells a lie? 
a liar. Okay, so we've already established you're a thief and a liar. Would you like to continue? <laughs> you, you know, I mean, that's just, re- that's just the reality of it. We don't like to be so, so blunt. But that's what the law, the law is blunt. The law is blunt, and it just tells all of us that we're guilty. And a lot of times, and, and that's not a popular message in our culture and in our time. Because what we want to have in our culture and our time, and is you know, that lens that we talked about that people want to see, you know, the Bible through, they want to start with, we're all good, and kind of go from there. And it's, that's a wrong cultural starting point. We're not all good. We're all guilty. That's the biblical starting point. You know, if we're all guilty. And the law proves that we're all guilty, that we're liars and we're thieves. And I'm not pointing at you this morning saying, you're a liar and you're a thief. Pointing myself and a liar and a thief. Because, because, you know, it doesn't really do any good. And for a person who's not a, you know, a believer in Jesus, it doesn't do that much good for somebody to point to them and say, well, you're a liar and a thief. It's only meaningful when the person points to themselves and says, yeah, that's, I'm a liar and I'm a thief. At that point, it actually makes a difference. Because then we recognize, well, I have a problem. So the old law can show us our guilt, but it cannot free us from the penalty or power of sin. We need to be really clear on this, that, yes, there was this need to, you know, attempt to keep the law in the Old Testament, but salvation was, you know, always has been by grace through faith. That's not a new thing. That's not a new thing. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But the old shows that our guilt, it it can show us our guilt, but it cannot set us free from the penalty of sin or from the power of sin. We need this new covenant. 1 Timothy 2 says, this is good. Talking about, you know, the context there is that we would be praying and that we would lead peaceful, quiet lives. And it says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I am not exaggerating, just telling the truth. We get that. Paul says, you know, this, there's one God and there's one mediator. You know, ultimately, there's one mediator of this new covenant, and it's Jesus himself, and it's found in his blood. He's the one who can reconcile God and humanity, that God's desire is for people to be, to be saved. That the Apostle Paul was given this message to teach it to the Gentiles. Well, this morning, I'm a Gentile. I needed this message about faith and about truth. You know, and we all need this message, Jew or Gentile, of this message of faith and truth. This ultimately goes back and fulfills the prophecy of John the Baptist about Jesus. In John chapter 1, uh, verse 29, it says that the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter 1, 18-19, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Continue on in the, in the chapter. It says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be who was going to do this? Um, in Matthew and Mark, uh, we see 
you know, G Judas leaving the table before that last bread and cup, you know, are taken. Um, but what's important to, to recognize here is that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows that um, this is going to happen. And in it all, there's still an opportunity for Judas not to follow through on his wicked plan. Even in the, all the truth that is told to him and all the truth that he hears, even in that last night, there's still opportunity for Judas to take a different path. You know, but there, becomes, there comes a point for Judas, though, that he's gone, he's gone too far. We're not there quite yet, but we're almost there. We're almost there. And so that's a, a terrible thing. Um, indeed, you know, and, and sometimes it's interesting talking to people today, you know, they kind of have this idea, I've talked to people and they say, well, you know, I'm a college student and I know I just want to have my fun and I'm going to come to know God later. You know, I'm just going to kick that can down the road. I know all that's important. I know there's really a God. I know this and that. But right now I just want to kind of do my own thing. But you know, that's a dangerous heart to have. That's a dangerous attitude to have. And there's no guarantee. You know, we're not, you know, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And, you know, the kind of the call for the, the message in that is, you know, be right with God while you can. Enter into the new covenant by the blood of Jesus while you can. It's not something to put off. It's something to grab hold of here and now, even today. You know, you don't put that off and say, well... I'll get right with God later. And then in verse 24, we have this interesting shift. And it's just crazy how the human mind, you know, can work and emotions and everything. Mercy. It says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And to me, this just doesn't make any sense. You know, they're sitting there for, talking about who's going to betray and now they've managed to shift that conversation from who's going to betray Jesus to, well, I know I'm not going to betray him, and I'm so confident I'm not going to betray him, I'm actually going to tell you that I'm better than you are. And I deserve more in God's kingdom than you do. And I deserve a higher place than you do. And you look at it and go, how in the world, after three years with Jesus, <laughs> and seeing his you know, humble life, hearing all that he taught, and still have your greatness as a priority. And I think there it exposes the human heart in all of us. In all of us. Because, I mean, we, you know, be very careful for thinking, oh, I would never do anything like that. I would never have an arrogant heart like that. Be very, very careful before entertaining any of those thoughts. But Jesus, being the great teacher that he is, he just uses this as another opportunity to tell the truth and to reorient them. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. Let's take a couple moments again. We have to, again, change our mindset and how we read things. Even when he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. You know, in our culture, in our day, you know, youth is viewed at as like the ultimate. Everybody wants to be young. You know, everybody wants to be younger than they are. You know, people who are 30 want to be 20, who are people who are 40 want to be 30. Every, you know, youth is like the, the high value. But in this culture, being older and having wisdom and having some gray hair shows that, you know, you, you have some wisdom, you have some life experience, you know, you have the seat of honor. You know, in our society, you know, once a person hits a certain age, it's kind of like, ooh. 
don't need to listen to them anymore. I just kind of kick that person to the curb. You know, we have a, a, a really different idea about the value of age than we see the value of age here in the scripture. And so we have to kind of, okay, wait a second. This is what my culture says, but things were different here. And it's not to say that this culture, um, you know, in terms of the, the Hebrew culture was like then the ultimate and we should just do everything like that. But what it is saying is, you know, you take again, what's, what's the teaching from scripture about age and about wisdom and about these things? And we go, okay, there's some value there. You need to pay attention to that. Let the greatest among you become the youngest, the leader as one who serves. Now, this one has been consistent throughout. That leaders throughout history do not serve other people. They are the ones who are served. I mean, that's just been a, you know, a pretty consistent cultural historical norm that's gone you know, from, doesn't matter really what culture you go to and visit and see at what time period. And look at who's in charge is usually having stuff done for them versus doing stuff for other people. Well, you know, Luke doesn't record it here, but we know that Jesus at this Last Supper washes the feet, the feet of his disciples. And maybe what's being alluded to when, when it said, but I am among you as the one who serves, that Jesus got up from the table and he girded his loins. As scripture said, you know, he hiked up his garments. He tied a belt around. You know, he, put, he went into work mode and got the basin and the water, and he washed the feet of his disciples. He served them. So he says, if you, you know, basically that his kingdom and his economy are different than the world's kingdoms and the world's economy. Because you want to be great in my kingdom where you serve other people. One of the things I loved when um, we actually had Jeremiah Jones was here uh, doing some music for us on Thursday. It was a great time. Um, but it, reminded, it just kind of reminded me in some ways back to days when we used to meet at Tasty World. And part of our arrangement being at Tasty World, for those of you who don't know, you know, big bar downtown, um, that we would clean the bar as part of our rent for meeting there on Sundays. And that included after UGA home football games. Woo! Going there on a Sunday morning after a Saturday football game day. You know, cleaning all the floors, mopping all the floors, wiping down all the tables, but the best and funnest of it all the bathrooms, and both levels, both floors of bathrooms. You know, we're talking four big bathrooms. Every Sunday for a long, long time. Now, one of the awesome things about that, oh my goodness, I'm sorry about that. Let me pick that back up. Um, So, one of the awesome things about that is that these verses get played out. These verses will get played out. Because you want to see who would serve, who would show up to help clean, and not just so it helped clean, but would say, I'll go take a bathroom. I'll go take a bathroom. I'll go do the dirtiest, nastiest job. Let me strap some gloves on. Now, what always got me is the guys who just feel like, I don't even need gloves. You know, Ugh. But, you know, I'm going to strap some gloves on, and I'm going to go to work. But, you know, sometimes you find people that say, you know, well, I, I want to serve by singing or playing music or preaching, but aren't willing to clean a toilet. It's real easy to say no on that. I loved that. I loved, I mean, it was awesome as for, leader, for the leadership of the church. It was awesome to have those bathrooms there. Because you knew real quick whether somebody really wanted to serve others, whether they were humble, whether they were willing to get their hands dirty. And that's a heart check. That's a real heart check issue of why am I doing this and why am I here? Do I just want the position of, of honor and the position where other, you know, in front of other people or am I willing to clean a toilet? Am I willing to clean the toilet? Long before Greg was an elder in this church, he cleaned 
I, I, I mean, it's in the thousands of times. I, I mean, he got in front of a toilet and cleaned it. Thousands. Another guy, you know, you, most of you don't know, Adam Hoover lives in Augusta. Now he's a doctor. Always there. Always cleaning those toilets. Man, it's like, yeah. I trust those guys with anything. Anything. Because I didn't think they were too good for that. And I'm just telling you, if you need, if, if you need, I mean, our toilets, they are clean. I mean, it's hardly like nothing. You know, my parents clean them, you know, every week before, you know, we come here. But sometimes, if you need this to put yourself in the right mind, it doesn't even have to be that dirty. Just go get the toilet brush, go up there, and just get to, and just get to work. You know, and just, just so you just know when, I mean, it, whatever it takes. Walk, I mean, and we've done this. It's been a long time since we've done this. But, you know, we walk around downtown to other businesses and just walk in with our caddies and say, can we clean your toilet today? Just to share the love of Jesus with them. Just to have an opportunity to say, you know, we're here to serve you. You know, and, and sometimes I think we can, you know, I, I don't want us in that regard to ever lose our roots as a church. That we are, as a church, that part of our DNA is that we're willing to get our hands dirty to serve other people. And it doesn't matter what position you're in now, you're not too grand to go clean the toilet. One of the, my favorite uh, stories, I've got a friend out in Hawaii, his name is Elwin Ahu. You can look him up. So you, I'm, not, I'm not making the story up. This is, this is reality. He, was a, he had been a successful lawyer. He became a judge. So he was a judge in Hawaii. And um, his professional life, you know, he's just doing fantastic. His personal life, though, is a train wreck. You know, his, he and his wife get divorced. He's got a fractured relationship with his son. You know, and he's sitting there. He's driving, you know, his really nice car. And he lives in paradise, right? Lives in Hawaii. And he's sitting there going, how is everything in my life seem to be so good except for the personal stuff that I just can't seem to get a handle on? And one day a friend of his hands in this tape and says, I want you to listen to this tape. It's this guy, Wayne Cordero. He's, you know, a preacher that I know of our church. I just want you to, to listen to it. So he listens to it. He's like, that's interesting. So he decides to go, you know, one Sunday, and he's there, and he gets like halfway through the message, and, and he's just like, man, this is ridiculous. This isn't anything for me. Gets up, starts to walk out, and he gives one look back, and then it was, he said it was like everybody else there wasn't there. Just the guy preaching, talking directly to him. There's nobody else in the room is what it feels like. And after that, I mean, there on the spot, he surrenders his life to Jesus. He says, I'm yours. He's a judge. What's the first thing he starts doing in that church? Cleaning bathrooms. He didn't want anybody there to know he was a judge. Yeah, and, and now, you know, he gets to, I mean, he's, he's a preacher, and he's using the gifts that God has given him. He left being a judge, you know, to serve in the church. Because um, that's what God had called him to do. Not, you know, God doesn't call everybody to leave what they're doing, you know, when they come to believe in him. But that's what God called him to do. But, but you know, the leadership of that church knew that he could be trusted. Because even though he had that high position and was looked at as a powerful, you know, person in the community, the fact that he's willing to clean a toilet, and that's where he wants to start serving. Again, shows his heart. And so my, the call for us is not, not to desire the high place. The call for us is desire to serve. That's the desire. But it's so easy for any one of us, myself included, to get it twisted to them where we go, well, I don't have time for that. And that's, you know, as a follower of Jesus, do we think anything's below, quote, unquote, our pay grade? 
There, there's nothing that we shouldn't be willing to do if it's what Jesus is asking us to do or if it's in service of other people. You know, we, ha- we have to have it in our, it's in our DNA as a church, but it has to continue on as a DNA in our church that we are, are people who serve others. We are people who serve others. But then Jesus says to this to him, and we're concluding here, he says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials. And, as, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what Jesus is, is saying to them, and it's really key and important, it's like, you guys have served. You know, you guys have been through the trials. You have, you know, done this, but that's the position you're to have and to maintain. You know, there's a future where, you know, they're going to have, a, they are going to have a place. You know, they are going to have a place that, you know, because of their, of their sacrifice and their service, you know, to Jesus and to other people that, you know, God is going to, to lift them up. They are going to have a kingdom, but that's a future thing. When the work is done. But here, now, he, he needs to remind them, you go serve. Because when, when Jesus leaves, those disciples are going to be there. And they're going to be the ones who ultimately you know, start the church. And, and, go th- and make disciples of all the people groups. You know, they're the ones who start get that ball rolling, get that started. And a number of them are going to die for their faith. Another of them are going to, you know, they're going to sacrifice everything. They're going to be servants ultimately in the way that Jesus was a servant to death. And so he's preparing them. It's like, you know, that, that's a future thing. And yeah, you can look forward to that. But here, now, I'm among you as the one who serves. You know, Jesus is telling them to follow his example. To follow his example. And ultimately, we see that they do. You know, after the cross, after the resurrection, like, they do finally get it. And it's not that they don't make any mistakes along the way. Certainly, they do. But they're, they're ultimately changed people and their perspective and their attitude and their purpose in life. And they get it. Well, the question for us today, you know, basically two things. One is... Is Jesus your mediator? Is he your savior? Is he the only one you are trusting in? That you put yourself down and say, I'm not trusting in myself anymore. I'm not trusting in myself anymore. But I'm trusting you, Jesus, and what you've done for me at the cross. That you put yourself aside. And you say, is Jesus is the one who is my savior. I'm not my own savior. I can't be. I'm guilty. So maybe this morning that's what you need to do. Maybe you're, you're already a, a follower of Jesus, but things have gotten a little bit twisted and you think that leading is not serving and that you know, our minds have to get and hearts have to get changed and reoriented just like these disciples is that we are here to serve others. And so we have to have a change of perspective and we have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry and nothing is too small for me. And I'm willing to clean toilets. And give me a heart, the heart of a person who's always willing to clean the toilet. Give me the heart of a person who's always willing to do that for other people. Because ultimately, our reason for that and our purpose for that and why we can stand in that reality is because we have a Savior who served. Who came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as we take that bread and that cup this morning, we remember as Revelation 5.12 tells us, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So we take that this morning and we say, you know, ultimately our call with that is Jesus, you are the lamb who is worthy. You're, you're, you were slain and you are worthy to receive the power, the riches, the wisdom, the strength, the honor, the glory, the blessing. I deserve nothing. 
I'm here to praise you and to worship you. I'm here to praise you. I'm here to worship you. That's my purpose in being here today is to lift your name on high. To worship means to ascribe worth, to give worth to. And that's why we come is to worship, to ascribe worth to the lamb who was slain for us. And we remember the sacrifice and the price that was paid. And so, as the scripture instructs us to, before we take it, we ask God to cleanse our hearts. To renew us. We lay our sins down before him. We try to keep short, you know, that's one of the reasons we have it every week, is to keep a short accounts with God. Although we have those every day. But at least, if you're here on a week-to-week basis, you're confronted with the reality of the cross, the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus. And you say, Lord, okay, this week, my heart was off in this area. My tongue said these things that didn't honor you. My actions, whatever it was, and you lay it down. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. And then you remember, you take, you know, the bread and, and the cup. And ultimately, we see throughout the New Testament and, you know, on, it's like everything changes. Remember, as these disciples of Jesus, as, you know, sincere, you know, followers of the law of Moses, had kept the Sabbath day their whole lives, which meant they met together on Saturday. Remember how everything changed back in, for, in Egypt? Like even the, the month changed, like when the month started, you know, their, their whole calendar changed and became to revolve around the Passover. In a similar way, our week changed because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday, our Sunday. First day of the week, he rose from the dead. And so then from that point, the followers of Jesus began to gather on that first day of the week to do what? To remember Jesus. And if you look back even at the ancient archaeology, you know, when you uncover like the very beginnings of like when the church would meet together in a place, you find those places, there's usually, I mean, you would see it as just like a table there and it's a circle. We got kind of like a semicircle because of where our space is designed in some ways. We're kind of limited. But, you know, it's this circle and the table is in the middle. Why? Because you're meeting to Jesus. And I hope that ultimately on Sundays that you remember that's our, that's our main purpose is we meet to Jesus. Share this together. As, that, as we take that bread... It shows that you're part of the body. We're one body in Jesus. It shows your communal attachment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Lord, for your um, grace in our lives. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me for every time I want to be a king. And I don't want to be a servant. Lord, for all the times I want to live like eternity has already come and that there's not still work to be done. But Lord, we know you are here and now and it's your Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And so help us to see more and more of it become reality as lives are changed, as people go from death to life, as they are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus, you created or instituted the new covenant through your blood shed for us at the cross. And we are thankful this morning that as we take that bread and we take that cup, that your work, you finished it at the cross. You finished it, Jesus, and because you finished that work, there's not more work for us to do for our salvation, but to receive it in faith and to give thanks and to have our lives and hearts changed. And so we pray, Lord, for any even here today or any who hear this message in the future, that they would hear 
and understand your great love. They would enter in by your blood, dear Jesus. Thank you for your goodness to us. We take the bread and we take the cup. We give you thanks. In your precious name, Jesus.